It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal on Bloomberg Television. What'd you miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories. And those you may just have missed, it is the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Julie Hyman was in this week, and we had a wide-ranging conversation with Guggenheim Global Chief Investment Officer Scott Minard. We talked about President Trump's trade war with China and why Scott thinks markets are crazy to ignore the risks and consequences. Yeah, there is some time to strike a deal, but boy, you know, that, that tail of risk is just getting fatter and fatter as we go along. And so far... The Chinese have shown no interest in backing down, and neither does Donald Trump. So um, the likelihood that we're going to strike a deal, I mean, let's just say it's 50-50. I mean, those are some pretty high odds of risk, and the consequences of a trade war uh, would be devastating for both the U.S. and the Chinese economy. Yes, I hear you on all of those fronts, but there is this view now in Washington, and it's bipartisan as well, that the U.S. needs to stand up to China uh, on trade. And again, Democrats are starting to sound this note as well. There's never really an optimal time to take action. So given the global backdrop, given the strength of the U.S. economy, and it's something that uh, Jay Powell alluded to in his comments earlier today, is the timing for this potential trade conflict, war, tiff, scuffle, however you want to characterize it, is it perhaps good? I mean, there's not a better time to do it, isn't there? Well, you know, it's sort of like launching a war. Is there ever a good time to launch a war? And the, the language around this, um, you know, of a war mm-hmm. is an interesting one because wars cost money. And so no matter if it's a good time or a bad time, this comes with a cost attached to it. So my view is that, you know, I would like to see us use other means to apply pressure to China than to use uh, the blunt force of tariffs. And when you look at some of the, the consequences here, I love to talk about the washing machine tariffs. Uh, it's funny. It's such a, 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 an obscure area, but the, the washing machine tariffs were announced in January. They, yeah, they've gone into effect. They've gone into effect. There were 15%. You know, how much of washing machines gone up in price? 15%. 17%. So the, the reality is, is who's going to pay for this trade war? It's going to be the U.S. consumer. Mm. So when you talk about, like, tariffs of 25% on automobiles, and some of it, you know, is some of it's just content-driven. So, you know, maybe it's not going to be a full 25%. Maybe it's going to be 15%. If we were to get a 15% increase in auto prices in the United States, that represents 6% of CPI, which means we would get a 1% surge in the price level. 
Now, a 1% surge in the price level is going to cause the Federal Reserve to react. And if they decide they have to start leaning against these price increases by picking up the pace of tightening, then it's going to devastate the entire economy. And the strength that you're talking about, Scarlett, today, mm. we may end up very well undermining uh, in, in this process. Talk to me about timeline. The washing machine tariffs have already gone into effect, so we've got some potentially maybe angry people out there who are now, have now had to spend a lot more on washing machines. Or, or some dirty clothes. Right. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, who are waiting for that new purchase and using the washboard instead. Uh, when uh, these other tariffs go into effect, when prices start to rise, one would think there would then be a consumer-led backlash, some political pressure, but how long does it then take to get to the negotiating table and is the president even susceptible to that kind of pressure? Well, I think you're asking all the right questions. I'm not so sure that that if we get to this point, especially if we view it as an attack on the Chinese, I think that won't go over well in China. And they'll say they have to stand up to the United States. And so this digging in process could go on for years. And um, you know, the political backlash, I'm not so sure about. Because I think that, you know, I've met people who tell me that we're going to hurt them more than they're going to hurt us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of irrational thinking. Well, if people are being <coughs> hurt, they're not really caring if the other people are being hurt more. In other words, if the individual U.S. consumer is paying more, who do they really care if Chinese consumers are also paying more? Well, I think there, are, there is a hardcore element in this country who might look at this and say, hey, you know what? So I'm paying 15% more for my car. I'm going to make my car last another year or two. But we really have to give it to these Chinese or to these Europeans or these Canadians or whichever one you want to pick. And I'm really glad you bring because it, 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 it backs up the idea that the U.S. can win a trade war by other countries losing. It doesn't right. actually have to win it on its own to come out ahead, right? If right. others suffer, if our trading partners suffer, then... Relatively speaking, we've come out ahead. Um, your take here is that most analysis of the trade situation does not reflect the hard truth of these tariffs being a tax that's paid by the consumer. Why do you think that is? Why, why are analysts, investors so reluctant to quantify it? Well, I, I think one is it's, it's not well understood. Right? We haven't dealt with this issue full scale since the 1930s. And so a lot of the people that were around back then and analyzed the situation and came up with the idea that global tariffs are bad mm -hmm. uh, are just not with us anymore. And so we get this very simplistic view, which is, oh, we're only going to put tariffs on 20 billion or 200 billion of assets of trade, and that's only 10%, and that's only $20 billion hit to the economy. And the reality is, no, 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 it's a bigger hit because that spills over into U.S. prices, and ultimately, if it goes on long enough, you start to uh, allocate capital and resources inefficiently mm -hmm. because if it's, if, it's, if it's easier and more productive to build automobiles in China and to build aircraft in the United States, then there's, there's an advantage here of comparative advantage in trade. And so we want to do, we want to build the things that we're more efficient at, and we want to let other people build the other stuff, and the, the basis of trade is that we can raise everybody's living standard. So, you know, I think there's, a, there's another element too, Scarlett, which is this idea that we're going to declare war on the rest of the world and everybody's going to suffer. 
Well, you know, something people aren't thinking about is, and it's already happening, if the Chinese reach out to Mexico, they reach out to Europe, they reach out to Canada, we could find that we're the odd man out, mm. that we're the people that are applying tariffs to everybody and everybody else is applying tariffs to us, and that they have uninterrupted free trade among themselves. And in that case, the U.S. is not, it's not going to be a game of they're losing less than us. It's going to be the U.S. is losing and everybody else is gaining. So bring it all back then to your view <coughs> of the U.S. economy, because already when we've spoken to you over the past six months, months or so, you think a recession could happen as soon as next year. Does this even pull that forward? Does it make it a worse recession? What does it do to that scenario? Well, I think that the, I think the timing of the recession is pretty well baked. Um, I mean, there are things here at the margin that could make it come a little faster or slow it down. So it would obviously increase the risk that the recession comes sooner, but not, I think, to a great extent. Um, however, I think what it will do is it will cause the Federal Reserve to continue to have to raise rates well past what we would think neutral is. And monetary policy would become uh, restrictive. And because of that restrictive policy, that could force us into a harder recession than we would have had if we hadn't had to lean against the inflation which would come out of tariffs. And of course, that goes back to uh, Jay Powell, the Fed chair, making comments uh, earlier this afternoon to Marketplace saying the economy is in a good place, but the inflation goal is not fully reached. How far behind the curve does this risk putting the Fed at? I mean, he's saying the inflation goal is not fully reached. You're saying we're going to see inflation pick up pretty quickly given these tariffs. If, if the tariffs go into effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think, the, I think it's really interesting. I think the, the pressure would start to appear in the fourth quarter. It would spell over into next year. Um, it would, um, I think, be a lot more powerful than people think. I mean, we just talked about automobiles. Uh, It's easy to see how automobiles could add 1% to inflation, but when you've got more goods coming in, you could see a real surge in the inflation rate, and that's going to cause the Federal Reserve to say, you know what, maybe we have to pick up the pace on tightening, and uh, we could see, you know, the the Fed funds rate, you know, maybe something like 3.5% somewhere in the middle of next year, certainly by the end of next year, and that is probably well past neutral. I mean, when you, I was just with President Williams at the Fed today, mm-hmm. and when you look at his own work on the neutral rate, that would suggest the neutral rate today is somewhere around 2.5%. Uh, 100 basis points or 1% above the neutral rate would be very restrictive. I mean, think of it in percentage terms. Uh, we're talking about you know, a Fed funds rate or an overnight rate that maybe is 40% above what would be neutral. Uh, that, that's a fairly restrictive policy. In the meantime, the Fed will continue unwinding its balance sheet as well, which is another form of tightening. That's right. And so all of this is coming uh, at the same time. And then the last piece of this is, you know, the tax cuts. Um, you know, people forget that economic growth is a rate of change. Mm-hmm. It's not an absolute level. So the surge in earnings that we're getting, the surge in growth we're getting is, is, is coming because of the tax cuts. But when those tax cuts don't happen again, that growth rate's going to flatten out or probably decline. So at the same time that we're fighting this inflation battle, we may very well find that the, the economy's losing momentum. And that would be an extremely difficult situation for the Federal Reserve. We also talked with Scott, who described himself as the most boring person in the investment world, about why he scoffs at being called a contrarian and why he sees signals of recession on the horizon. 
Well, in terms of our, our firm, it really helps diversify the business mix on the security side. Uh, you know, we're, we're currently representing Disney uh, in the uh, uh, acquisition of Fox. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we have a lot of great M&A capability, but, you know, what happens if I'm right and we ultimately do have a recession? Uh, and M&A falls off. And so, you know, being able to do restructuring, the stuff that, that Jim has really made a name for and his people have made a name, is, is a really great way for us to enhance our business and to reduce the cyclicality in it. And speaking of which, if indeed we are going to see an economic downturn, how do you grow assets under management in that kind of a scenario? Is it just by being correct on, on that kind of a point? Well, it, you're right. I mean, in the in the financial crisis where uh, we had foreseen what was coming, uh, we actually were one of the few asset managers that grew assets throughout the crisis. Um, and uh, so, you know, those times tend to be very good for us. And uh, uh, obviously, the problem you have is uh, you may be growing assets, but the value of those assets may right. be going down. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that that's the real challenge and the headwinds. But uh, if you can grow assets through the downturn, once the downturn comes around, then you know you'll get a huge surge in AUM, and that's what happened to us in '09, and and hopefully we'll get a replay of it again. Well, your challenge is to grow assets faster than the value can go down. Perhaps uh, we reported last month that Google Guggenheim is weighing a stake sale. Talk about who your ideal strategic partner would be to recapitalize the firm to uh, expand distribution overseas and, and sure. assets in general. Well, well, first off, we don't we don't need recapitalization, so. Uh, we're not really looking for money, but we have been approached by a number of people mm-hmm. who see us as an interesting strategic fit. Um, there's really no discussions going on right now in terms of a particular partner, mm-hmm. but it would seem that the type of partner we would want is someone who's going to complement us in other regions of the world, okay. uh, like in distribution, perhaps to pick up some asset management capability in, in other categories like uh, you know, sovereign bonds. I mean, believe it or not, people still buy sovereign bonds in Europe. Help me <laughs> with that. But there, there are lots of areas where we could, could uh, further expand our business. And so when people approach us, that's the number one concern we always have is how they'll fit uh, in terms of our future growth. Not so much, you know, we, as I mentioned before, we don't need the money. Okay. If it's for other parts of the world and the partner is indeed foreign, for instance, mm-hmm. right. what would a trade war or whatever you want to characterize what's going on, how would that affect that? Well, it's a good question, Scarlett. I mean, the, the, uh, there, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. Uh, especially when you look at places like China, where, uh, you know, the logical next step if we get into this trade war is to start, you know, capital restrictions. Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, get a a strategic joint venture together with somebody in China? That's a pretty difficult thing if that's what's happening. Uh, But, um, you know, hopefully we wouldn't get to that point in Europe. Uh, But, uh, again... You know, I think at this stage of the game, if uh, the right person came along, we would obviously entertain a discussion regardless of where they are in the world. And, and getting back to the idea of competition, your total return bond fund has been performing quite well over the past year and um, over the three- and five-year periods. Um, as you look ahead and look at this sort of recession potential scenario, it seems as though there are an increasing number of other strategists who are maybe coming around to that view. Morgan Stanley, for example, just coming out and saying the curve could invert next year, and that usually precedes a recession. Um, When does that become a risk that everybody's as pessimistic as you are? Uh, Give them them about 40 more basis points in the yield curve. (laughs) Um, You know, it's interesting. uh, 
I, I really think I'm one of the most boring people in the investment world because if you talked to me in 2013, I would have told you this, we're doing the, virtually the same thing today that we were doing then. The only difference was uh, we've upgraded the credit quality of the portfolio. But in 2013, given the shape of the yield curve after the taper tantrum, uh, the clear direction was the curve would flatten from there. And we've had that trade on all along. Mm. So, uh, you know, the curve uh, between, you know, Treasury bills and, and the 10 year. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Our note was 300 basis points or 3%. Hmm. Uh, you know, today it's a lot lower. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people that want to jump on the bandwagon now and capture that last 40 basis points, you know, okay, go for it. Welcome to the yeah, party. Welcome to the party. <laughs> We're going to need somebody eventually to take us out of this position. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that uh, uh, for me, um, you know, I, I'm often called a contrarian, which I don't like because the label implies that I'm trying to have an opinion different to other people. And the reality is that that's not me. I just like to look at the data, look at the world, and see what logical conclusions that I can draw. And uh, so, you know, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable place in terms of the pack because I'm often outside the pack because I don't really listen to them very much. And it helps this, being outside of New York, too. What's that? It oh, helps yeah. being outside of New York. Though, you know, California's a pretty, yeah, LA's a pretty big a bond center. Yeah. But the, the thing I will say is, I've written about this before, is that um, the consensus is the path to mediocre returns. And so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see people are coming around to our way of seeing the world, and hopefully they'll join us soon so we can get out. I love how you describe yourself as boring, and then everything that you said after it was not boring. <laughs> <laughs> then we spoke with Shannon O'Neill. She's a senior fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also a frequent contributor to Bloomberg Opinion about Andres Manuel López Obrador's to-do list for when he takes office as Mexico's next president. We asked how big a priority migrants are for AMLO. Well, it doesn't rank high on what he wants to do. He has a huge domestic agenda. He wants to help poor farmers. He wants to provide better pensions for the elderly, scholarships for young people. He has a huge domestic agenda. But what may happen is migrants will become a huge issue on his agenda. Sort of here. This isn't what Trump wanted to come in and do, but this is what he and the Congress have to deal with. So AMLO may have a very similar challenge. Is this a big issue in terms of the voting public in Mexico? It's not a big issue yet, but if you can imagine, for the last several years, Mexico has been stopping somewhere between 100 and 150,000 Central Americans from traversing Mexico, and many of them coming up here to the United States. If all of a sudden those people came into Mexico, if the border was opened on the south of Mexico, but they were stopped in the north of Mexico, you could imagine 100,000 Central Americans trying to find a place within Mexico. And then I think it would become an incredibly important domestic issue. He would have to deal with it in domestic politics. How much have both Mexico and the United States been working on the issues, the trouble spots in Central America at their source, as it were, the source of migration? I mean, this is something that the U.S. 
had had some efforts on in the past, right? Where are we now and what role is Mexico playing? You know, here in the United States, we have been doing this for the last few years, at least, since we saw this border crisis in 2014. We send somewhere between 600 and $700 million a year to Central America to deal with some of these root causes, but it's not enough money, and there are a lot of challenges. Mexico has been working with Central America and the U.S. somewhat in this issue, but it is a huge source of problems that we're not going to see disappear any time soon, which means we won't see migrants to either country disappear anytime soon. A lot of the talk uh, during the U.S. presidential campaign, of course, was migrants from Mexico. Uh, President Trump talked about Mexican rapists, for instance. Um, but what's interesting, and as you point out in your column, Mexico has changed from being a sending nation to a receiving nation because it's now getting migrants from Central America that then bypass Mexico. What are the tools it has at its disposal right now to manage the inflows? Well, how is it how is it dealing with it right now? Well, Mexico has very expansive laws on the books. So if you're a migrant coming in and you're trying to seek asylum, you have the right to a lawyer and a process and an appeal, all sorts of things. In reality, Mexico is not doing much of that, or if any of that. Mm. They have very few offices for migrants to go to to seek asylum. They have a very backed up system. And they have a lot of abuses of migrants within their system. So they, so Lopez Obrador coming in as president, if he really wants to fulfill these promises to open up and be more humanitarian, there's going to have a lot of resources will have to be poured into the system. So is there a way in which uh, AMLO's priorities could dovetail with Donald Trump's and they could have a more positive working relationship than maybe people would have guessed? Well, both of them will face potentially this migration crisis. And the question is, will they dovetail or will they choose different directions? So far, the rhetoric from Lopez Obrador is that he'll be more humanitarian. He'll open up. He certainly won't separate kids from their parents at the border. But we'll see what happens when the reality hits. I mean, at the same time, his rhetoric has also been quite anti-Trump, has it not? I mean, it's not as though... At the same time, I wanted to mention also, he's um, set to meet with... Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, right? Um, he's going to be visiting the U.S. He's set to speak about NAFTA, security, regional development. Immigration doesn't appear to be yet mm-hmm. on, that, on that list. It's not yet, right? He's talking about the economic issues, some of the border issues. Mexico wants a good relationship with the United States, so we're starting off there. And Trump has had some nice tweets back and forth in terms of, of congratulating Lopez Obrador. But I think the real question will be when they get together. And in the end... Trump is not popular in Mexico, and so he needs to play, AMLO needs to play to his base. How, how much of a pragmatist is AMLO when it comes down to it? He has been very pragmatic in the past, and that's what everybody wants to know. Is he going to be this economic populist and, and fulfill all these big promises, or is he going to be a pragmatist? And he, you've seen both of those in his governing style in the past and the way he's dealt with other people. I would say there will be lots of areas where he'll be pragmatic, mm-hmm. and one of them might be with the United States, and it might be with migrants. We'll see. And finally, we broke down the latest jobs numbers with Bill Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute. We asked him what they revealed about how tight the labor market is. You know, the story of the labor market for now for a couple of years has been how tight it is and how there's such a shortage of skilled workers and, and, and employers are having difficulty filling openings. And I, I know I, I, on this show, we've said many times, I just can't believe there's a shortage because where, where's the spike in wages that's accompanying that shortage? Because there certainly won't be a shortage if you raise wages. So one, one of the, the underreported things about the, 
today's employment report is the strength in manufacturing employment. Yeah. You see the manufacturers have gained 36,000 jobs, which is, is at, at a pace that hasn't been seen since 1995. The 12 months change is about 285,000. So we see the revival of manufacturing. They're able to fill their slots. In fact, their hiring of, of, of uh, non-supervisory production workers has really been very, very accelerated. Well, at the same, they, they've done that by raising wages at about 3% for the last six months. So they actually have been raising wages very aggressively. But manufacturers is weird because manufacturers have to be competitive. So how do they keep wage costs down? If you look at the, the wage inflation for all employees in manufacturing, you notice that it's only gone up by 1.5%. So they've kept costs down, and yet they've made, managed to pay for the workers they need. Well, how do they do that? They did it by reduced, restructuring their management, getting rid of administrative costs, uh, outsourcing, and innovating. And I think that's the secret uh, sauce in wage dynamics that hasn't been talked about. We actually can have a lot of employment gains. We can have higher wages to fill the job openings mm. at the same time be non-inflationary. Right. The wage gains are happening, for instance, at the lower level where perhaps more entry level yeah. or just uh, lower wage positions than the managerial positions. This is the case for manufacturing, as you pointed out, but our economy is largely services driven. Do you see this in the service sector as well? Uh, Scarlett, there's a rub. Manufacturing is only 8% of total employment, and the bulk of the employment, as you say, is in the service sector. So if you take something like um, healthcare and, and, and education, the, one of the fastest growing sectors in the service sector, and they employ a lot of people. Now, they unfortunately are burdened with a lot of administrative uh, and government regulations that prevent them from really ha doing a lot of cutting to their costs. In fact, the administrative procedures seem to be getting more and more complex, and it's adding to their costs. So even if they are able to innovate and streamline some of their management, they seem not to be getting ahead of the curve because what we see there is wage inflation going up about 2.7%, which is about the pace of the uh, overall service sector. And they have not been able to cut costs the way manufacturers have to, uh, to, to, uh, to be competitive. So if there's no shortage of labor overall, and we've talked all the time about the labor shortage, are we just parroting corporate employer propaganda? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, just as the, the trade excuse is going to be a great excuse for firms to use to say why things aren't going right, um, this shortage issue is going to be another excuse for, for companies to, um, to do the things that they were going to do originally, which was to not hire, to fire people. And I think the, the wage shortage issue, as an economist, you have to ask yourself, there's never a shortage at the right price. So right. why don't you get the right price? And, and, and of course, firms are just not willing to raise wages because they want fat profit margins to keep their stock prices up or they have some other reason for, for, for not raising wages. So, so, so I think the, the competitive nature of markets is one that's exemplified very clearly in manufacturing where they have to be competitive. So they did all they could to bring in whatever innovations needed to lower costs, but at the same time, raise wages exactly in those areas where they need to bring in new workers. I want to go back to what you're saying about those rising administrative and regulatory costs in some of the service sectors, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare. How much of that is showing up in the wage uh, metrics that we follow, whether it's average hourly earnings or the PCE deflator? I mean, is that corrupting the way that we look at wage gains? You know, if, if you look at the PCE deflator, right, it's certainly healthcare costs. A lot of it is, is imputed, so it's even calculated. It's not even a market price. And when we look at the PCE deflator, it is rising that inc inclusive of administrative costs. So far, I've not seen anyone propose a measure of market-based price prices for the service sector that somehow strips out the government-bred 
type of uh, upward pressure on prices. Now, when I used to teach economics, I used to tell people, you know, administrative costs are level increases in prices. That's not inflation. Right now, I'm saying it is inflation because what we're seeing is a sequence of higher and higher administrative costs that are brought about by more and more complex uh, government regulations. So I think it's actually snowballing into an inflationary process, hmm. and it's distorting a lot of the uh, a lot of the numbers that we see out there. All right. and, and certainly the Federal Reserve is not the right tool, the monetary policy is not the right tool to use when you're combating administrative price inflation. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.